0: TheYeshiva.net Okay, there will be a Purim bringing here in the shul, 18 for Sheh, for men and special section for women. That's Purim night after the Suda, Thursday evening, 9.30 p.m. Everybody is invited, men, women, children. That's 9.30 p.m. Today's class is dedicated by Solomon Ezekiel. Thank you very, very much for your friendship and partnership. It's also dedicated by Frady. You didn't put in your last name. In gratitude for enriching each tif every Shabbos in our day-to-day lives, thank you so, so much. And dedicated by Rabbi Shmuel Katz in memory of his grandfather, Harav Hil Hillel Hakoyin ben Esther. The title of today's class is, Do We Really Want People to Lose Their Minds on Purim? That's the title. So that's going to be the topic. The subtitle is How Purim Has the Secret to Dealing with Trauma. You want to know what's the connection, so that's why we'll have the class. So let's begin with the first source. This is very, very well known. There's a Mishnayiz that's dedicated to Purim called Maseches Megillah, Tractate Megillah. And it has also in it Gemara. So the Gemara in Tractate Megillah, Maseches Megillah, Dav Zion, page 7, Zion Ahmed Bey, 7b, says, Amar Rava, Rava said, who is Rava? Rava is one of the greatest Talmudic sages of his day. He lives in Babylonia and Bavel, present-day Iraq. Rava lives approximately 800 years after the story of Purim, in the 4th and 5th century after the Common Era, already a few hundred years after the destruction of the second Bay of and he and his colleague Abaya constitute much of the discussions and conversations throughout Gemara. Havayah is So Omar Rave, Rav says, Rava said, inish ad lo or Translation, a person is obligated to become inebriated or intoxicated on Purim until he is unaware of the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mardechai. Lebesume is an Aramaic word. Rashi says it means to become inebriated, intoxicated through drinking wine, until the person reaches the point that they don't know the difference. And this statement of Rav made its way into the Shulchan Aruch, into the practical code of Jewish law, Shulchan Aruch, Erechayim, Simon Tufresh, Sadeke, which constitute the laws of Megillah and the laws of Purim. The Shulchan Aruch, authored by Rabbi Yosef Karo in the 1500s in Sfas, he says he quotes the Gemara verbatim: "Chayav inish beporaya ad Person is obligated to become inebriated on Purim to the point that they don't know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mardachei. That's the halacha. The obvious question is, and this is the first, the third source. This is raised by the Chafetz Chaim in his Brura, Bir Halacha. He says, What is this? What happens suddenly to the sages that they're obligating Jews to do something that throughout the Tanakh we see is considered actually very negative. It's considered to be toxic. Pun intended, intoxication is considered to be a mikshal Gadol. Mikshal Gadol means great obstacles, great challenges, problems could come from it. We all know the issue of uh, alcoholism. And here it's suddenly an obligation. This is what the Bir Halacha asks. Already generations before, the Beis Yosef, who is the author of the Shulchan Aruch, his commentary on Tur. He quotes, it doesn't mean to get drunk. shikrus getting drunk is absolutely forbidden. There's no greater sin. It causes all the problems in the world. It causes lack of modesty, promiscuity, it can cause bloodshed, violence, and many other sins. It means actually It means to drink a little more than you're accustomed to, to go a little beyond your comfort zone in drinking. That's what he says, the Beis Yosef. And yet in Shulchan Aruch, in his own Shulchan Aruch, (laughs) written afterwards, he just says, This is one of those very enigmatic laws. Why did the Chazal do it? What did they mean with it? But really the question is more fundamental. What does this even mean? A person should drink on Purim until they don't know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mardechai. That seems actually to go against the very grain, the very essence of Purim because the whole reason Purim is a celebration is why is because Haman was defeated and Mardechai was victorious. If there's no difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mardechai, then there's actually no reason to celebrate Purim. If Haman is a great guy, you know, I could say, blessed is Haman. Haman is blessed. Then the whole point of Purim is obsolete. It, 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 it's moot, it's irrelevant. The whole reason why we're happy on Purim is because V'naprechu, Haman, who schemed such an evil scheme against the Jewish people, went down, he was hung on the gallows, and his decree was annulled. And Mardachai and Esther and the Jewish people, are Yehudim, I Yisrael, so if Haman was not cursed, there's no reason to celebrate Purim. So how do you celebrate Purim? You should celebrate Purim to the point that you don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. If you really don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai, then stop the party. So it's like a real paradox. It's a catch twenty two. You're celebrating Purim. Why are you celebrating Purim? Because you know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. If not, there's no reason to party. But you should party to the point that you don't know the difference. So then then you, then you lost the whole theme and message of Purim. Also, thematically, it seems strange. There's a famous Gemara in Psachim that when a person is checking on Pesach for chametz, so we're not afraid that they're going to eat it. Why? Because the whole reason why you're checking for it is in order to get rid of it. So if you're checking for it to get rid of it, so you're not going to come to eat it. You're not checking for the chametz because you're looking to eat chametz. You're checking for it because you want to burn it. So here, the whole reason the person is drinking is because to celebrate Purim, which is the defeat of Haman. And you say you should reach a point that actually Haman suddenly becomes the good guy. Haman is blessed. Then there is the educational question, the pedagogical question that I'm sure some of you have asked over the generations, over the years, I should say. Is this really really an appropriate goal and theme? That on Purim you should celebrate until you don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai, Between cursed as Haman and Baruch Mordechai? Is this what I want for my children or for my students, that they shouldn't know the difference between... Haman being cursed and Mardachai being blessed. I mean, I would say one of the main functions of pedagogy, of education, is to teach our youth and to teach all of us the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong, between the holy and the profane. As the Pesach says, If you would move into an apartment building, And uh, I would tell you, by the way, your neighbor doesn't know the difference at all between good and evil, between what is constructive and destructive, between morality and immorality. It would be a little queasy to live in the proximity of somebody who, for him, Haman and Mardachai are identical. So, the idea of understanding the difference between compassion and cruelty, between what's right and what's wrong, between morality and immorality, between... Life and death between peace and, and violence is, is fundamental to civilization, certainly fundamental to, to, to the Jewish people. And yet here, the Chazal seem to be saying, at some point you should lose that difference. Now, many of the commentators say, why did you rather say this? Because that's what happened on Purim. The story of Purim is a story about people who kept on getting drunk, it starts off with Achashverish parting for 187 days. The last day, Ketov Lev HaMelech and was completely, completely smashed or inebriated. That's when he summoned Vashti to come. She was probably also not too sober. They get into this major fight. Vashti ultimately is eliminated and Esther comes to the palace. Later on, Achashverish makes another feast called Mishta Esther in order to celebrate Esther's coming to the royal, coming, uh, com- becoming the queen of Persia. And then later, the highlight of the story, Esther throws a party, she invites Achashverish and Haman to the party, gets them both drunk, gets Achashverish and Haman to come to a second party, and Achashverish again is drunk, Haman is drunk, and that's when Esther really unleashes her brilliant, um, innovative creativity and ingenuity, and has Haman dig his own hole, and the Jewish people saved. So if Achashverish, if Esther wouldn't have used a tool of wine and excessive wine, and Ahasuerus himself wouldn't like to drink, the whole story wouldn't come to the fore. It's a very certainly a very interesting interpretation. The question, though, is so that means we're trying to copy Ahasuerus, we're trying to copy Haman, I mean, these were people who liked drinking, and ultimately it turned out that Ahasuerus' drinking habits contributed to the salvation of the Jewish people, but why on Purim are we trying to mimic them and emulate them in terms of excessive drinking? So some people, even if they won't say it bluntly, but it's certainly I think a sense that many people have is that it's almost like the one day a year that Judaism just allows everybody to lose it. It's like, I don't know if anybody would say this officially, but it's like, you know, one day a year you have to watch your teenagers become really, really crazy and you just hope that the hangover doesn't continue uh, for too long. Most women who are usually responsible on Purim bite their lips a little bit. It's supposed to be the happiest day of the year. But many are biting their lips. They want to know where my kids are. <laughs> where did they end up? So most people would say people who usually don't smoke suddenly are a lot of smoke. People who you would never find throwing up. I'm not going to elaborate here and get graphic. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to make Erev Purim miserable. It's enough what people go through on Purim. So it's like almost that day, you know. People get a little wild, especially in the masculine gender, and teenagers have a, an excuse, to be able just to, <laughs> to do things they wouldn't do. They wouldn't do in other times of the year. You see it in Israel. You see it in many Jewish communities. In, uh, in 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 Hebrew, there's an expression. You know what lehishtolel means? To go wild, to lose it. But does that really make sense? I mean, all of Yiddishkeit is based on the idea of shivisi Hashem lenegdi Summit. A person has das. A person has awareness. It's based on the idea that God is always with me. Hashem it's based on the ideas it says in Pekhi Vera. Look, always focus on three things, and it will prevent you from problems. You should always know, know who's above you. There's an eye that sees, and an ear that hears, and all of my deeds are written down in the book. We say every morning, The advantage of a person over a behema. That is the key of Yahdus, to understand the difference between a person and a behemoth, an animal. So it would seem so strange that Chazal almost like instituted this. From where? From what? But then there's also another question. Why Purim? Rav says, Purim, this is not the only holiday of Jewish salvation. Why not Pesach? We were saved on Pesach too from Parai. He was a pretty serious criminal. I never saw any way I should say that on Pesach you should eat so much matzah and so much maror and so much charoset and so much matzah brai, if you do gibrakht, and drink so much wine until you don't know the difference between pari and maisha. And you should bless, suddenly pari is blessed. You shouldn't know the difference between maisha is blessed and pari is cursed. It doesn't say that. Or Hanukkah, you should eat so many donuts and so many latkes. And have so much oil until you don't know the difference between Antiochus and Yehuda and Maccabee. And you should say, blessed is Antiochus. Why not? <laughs> the Jewish people were saved on Purim. On Purim, they were saved on Hanukkah. They were saved on Pesach. On Pesach, it's also a mitzvah to drink four cups of wine. Don't say, Adelayadah, you should lose your mind. On Hanukkah, we don't drink. On Hanukkah, you light candles. You say, Hallel. We do the other minhagam of Hanukkah. What happened on Purim that they felt, that Rava felt, Adelayadah, benaramalabarach mardachah. If you look at the fourth source, it's the Ramah. Rabbeinu Moshe Yisrlish, he was the rabbi of Krakow, also in the 1500s. And he writes, he says, on the Shulchan Aruch, it's a comment on the Shulchan Aruch that says you're supposed to become intoxicated. He says, some say the ain't Zarech kolkach, ele shayish some people say it doesn't mean you should get drunk so much. It means drink a little more than you're used to, which we already saw from the Beis and then fall asleep. Now if you're sleeping, you don't know the difference between cursed to some and blessed is Mardachet because you're sleeping. So the Ramaz says some say don't take it literally. It means drink a little extra because it's a day of celebration and feast and you'll get tired, you'll snooze off. You'll sleep, and then you won't know the difference. And then he continues, Whether one goes with a little more or one goes with a little less, the main thing is that their mindset, they should be mindful of Hashem. So what do we see the Ramah saying here? The Ramah suddenly is saying that it may not even mean literally, it just means drink a little more, fall asleep. The question is, why would then Chazal put it in these terms? Very strange terms. They could have said... Am um, you should feast and celebrate, drink a little extra, get into a better mood, a more festive mood. But they put it in these words, you shouldn't know the difference between cursed and They um, could have said, drink a little more until you fall asleep. But mainly, you don't know the difference. It's a very interesting way of expressing it according to the Ramah, according to those opinions that say it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean literally. And also in the Ramah itself, he says whether you're drinking a lot or you're drinking a little, the main thing is, she'echavet li'bay Shamaya. If I'm really mechaven libele shamayim, can I lose my mind to the point that I could say blessed is Hamma or the other thing about Mardachai? What does... <laughs> how do we make sense out of all of this? The question becomes even stronger when you look at Zoyar. There's a section of Zoyar called Tikune Zoyar. It includes 70 interpretations on the word Bereshis. And the Zoyar says that the reason they named Chag Purim Purim, in the Megillah it says Al-Shem ha-pur, because of the Lot, the Geiril. We spoke about it last week. The Zoya says there's also a deeper interpretation. That Purim Al-Shem Yoim ha Iskiri. It got the name of Yoim ha In Torah we have our day, the 10th of Tisha, which is Yoim ha the Day of Atonement, the Day of Kapara. When they wanted to choose a name for Purim, they decided the best choice would be Purim, which is almost identical to Yoim ha In fact, it says in Smarim that one of the interpretations of Yom HaKippurim is Yom HaKippurim. The day that is like Purim. Which means, in many ways, that Purim may be even higher than Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur, even though it comes earlier in history, is like Purim. It's compared. It's like Kemoy Purim, like Purim. Now, if I ask you a question, look at the Jewish calendar and tell me which are the two days that are more diametrically opposed, that are most diametrically opposed in the Jewish calendar. It's no no-brainer. It's Yom Kippur versus Purim. Yim Kippur is a m- mood of intensity and seriousness and introspection and truth, and people are in shul all day. You don't fast, you, don't, I mean, you, you do fast, you don't eat, and you don't drink, and there's no bathing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can't even wear shoes. And Purim is the exact opposite, certainly in a person's sensations and ambiance and atmosphere and the whole zeitgeist and the energy of Purim. But somehow the Zoya saw it differently. The Zoya says that the two closest days in the year are Yom Kippur and Purim. <laughs> That's what he says, Purim is Nikrit, it's so called Shem Yom HaKippur. What is happening here? Like, do, do we really, did we really, do we really not, maybe we don't know what Purim is or we don't know what Yom Kippur is. But this comparison between the two, and not just comparison, the juxtaposition between making them the two closest days when they seem to be the two most distant days, seems so enigmatic, which of course invites us into a deeper understanding and perspective of this very concept of Ad Deloyada. Because when a person thinks that Purim is not a serious day, it's just a day of Hishtololut, how do you say Hishtolalut? Ah, huh? Not roaming around. Chaos. Absolute chaos. It's really missing the point of the essence of Purim. Because Yom Kippur, nobody's going to say it's a day of chaos. On the contrary. It's a day of focus. It's a very serious day. So Purim certainly is a very festive and happy day, but it's a very serious day. The happiness is a very serious happiness. Serious happiness doesn't mean it's not happy. It means that it's a happiness that is very deep. It's very profound. It's very... Authentic. So today we're going to present one of the very powerful explanations, what Adalayada means. What does it mean not to know the difference? The source of it comes from the you'll see it in your fifth source sheet. By the way, the source sheets are posted on the yeshiva.net, so you can always review them later. From the Balatanya, my Admur Hazakin <speaking> Tovkov <in> Samahgimel Omud Reshe. Balatanya has a discourse, a Maimir that he said on Purim Tovkov Samach Gimel, that would be 1803. And I quote, Ain Hapirush Shaloyedaklaw. Rava does not mean you shouldn't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mardukha. Shehu Shayoima You should say the opposite. You should say that Mardukai Haswashala is cursed and Haman is blessed. That's not what it means. Kiyim Hapirushhu, the meaning is Shayomar or Haman even on Purim, a Jew should say, "Cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai." but you shouldn't know it. What does it mean? You shouldn't know it. He shouldn't be self-conscious when he says it. A person should be able to say, "Blessed is Haman and cursed is Mordechai," but without das, it shouldn't be coming from das. It shouldn't be coming from a form of self-consciousness and self-awareness. And he gives those two excellent words, Vedila Maven, this will be enough for somebody who understands. For somebody who understands, this will be enough. So we want to decipher, at least to some degree, to some limited degree, these very, very profound words. What is he saying? When Rav says, You have to listen to the words very carefully. A person is, he could have said, a person is supposed to be drunk until he doesn't know what hit him. (laughs) There's an expression in Chazal, You're as drunk as loit. Which is, of course, a symbol of somebody who is completely drunk to the point that the deterred describes in Parshas Vayeda what happened as a result of his inebriation with his daughters, etc. He was so drunk that he could allow for promiscuous, adulterous, incestual behavior. That's an expression of somebody who completely loses their mind. They're just out of it. They're out of it. They're smashed, stoned, as they say, from, from, from yayin, from alcohol. Rava doesn't say that. Rove decides to talk about Haman and Mordechai. Until you don't know the difference between curses and Baruch says the Balatanya, it means that I'm putting my reach a place of Adeloyada Baruch I don't know the difference between Haman and Baruch So most people may say it means what? There's no difference. He says no. It means that the difference between Haman and Mordechai is not stemming from Yada. It's not stemming from a place of intellectual, cerebral knowledge, analysis, das perception. It's coming from another place completely. The difference between curses and blessed Mardechai should not be coming from yoda, from the fact that I know it, I understand it intellectually, I wrap my brain around it. But what does this mean? <laughs> what does it mean? The words are interesting that Ampurim a Jew ought to reach a state that Yadab. It's not that he knows the difference knows, which means a whole year, Haman is cursed and Mardechai is blessed. What creates that distinction? My das, my knowledge of it, my understanding of it, my perception of it. Yada, yidiyah, we say a person knows, yada, das, knowledge. So the difference between the two stems from my yidiyah, my awareness of it, my conscious awareness of it. That's what creates the difference. On Purim, he says, there's a special opportunity. It's a gift. What's the gift? The gift is not that I don't know the difference between them. Not that Haman and Mardechai are identical, as we explained. If Haman and Mardechai are identical, there's no Purim. <laughs> Stop the party. You should party, celebrate so much that there's no difference, and then there's no party. So there is a difference. Not only there's a difference, if there's ever a difference, on Purim is the biggest difference. <laughs> because Purim is the day you celebrate the victory. Imagine somebody was saved from the war, and you say you should be so happy on this day that you don't know the difference between the murderers and the victims. It's, it's, it's a strange thing to say. You could say, be so happy, the that, I don't know, you know. Lose yourself in ecstasy. Fine, I understand that. But it's a very strange way, especially Jews, okay, Rav didn't live at the time, but especially he's talking to people who went through Purim. You shouldn't know the difference. Tell a mother who went through Yitzis Mitzrayim and say, you shouldn't know the difference. Really, I shouldn't know the difference. So the Alter Rebbe, the Baltanya says, No. Ampurim, the difference is much deeper than a whole year. So what's Adullah Yada? The difference is not coming from Yada. It's not coming from Yediyah. You're reaching a place that you don't know between Arar Haman and Baruch not because there's no difference, but because the difference is not coming from your Yada, from your knowledge. To explain what this means, we have to understand a little bit more about what happened on Purim. And then we'll see why Rava said these words. We all know the story. The story is: it's in the chapter 3 of Megillah Esther that we read on Purim at night and in the morning. The story you have it here in your source sheets as well. One, two, three, four, four. One, two, three, four, five. Seventh source. Acher Advarimael, I'll translate into English. Achashverish is the king. Vashti is gone. Esther is the new queen. And the king decides to appoint a new prime minister. What we call rosh Memshalah. Second in command, a Mishnah Lamelech, a viceroy. person who is right under the king. And this is Haman. And he doesn't just appoint him. He elevates him. His throne is above any other minister. Meaning, he is the closest person to the king. He is the king's confidant. He has the king's ear. The king trusts him. He feels that he is his man. He's loyal to him. Not only that the king inspires such dedication and such reverence and fear for Haman that everyone is bowing down, kneeling and prostrating themselves to Haman. And it's not just because they want to find favor by Haman. Kichein It's a king's command. It's the royal command that Haman needs to be all the way on top. That's how much Achashveresh needs him, trusts him, cherishes him, values him. But Mardachai, Mardachai won't kneel, and won't bow down. And the Pesach continues. This is Peregimel Esther chapter 3, verse 5. Haman sees that Mardechai is not kneeling, he's not bowing before him. Haman is infuriated. He's filled with wrath. Got it. He doesn't want to just kill Mardechai. That's not good for him. Why? We're now waiting for an explanation. Because they told Haman about the nation of Mardukhai. Ah, if so, so now what's Haman's ambition? He wants to exterminate Chalila, all the Jews under the empire of Achashvedish, who he calls Am Mardukhai, the nation of Mardukhai. And that's when he comes to the king with his plan, Pasuk Ches, and he tells the king famously, there's one nation, they're scattered everywhere, they have their own religion, they don't follow your laws, it's really worthless for you to leave them intact, to keep them alive, and the king agrees, and the Pasuk continues saying how he sent out a decree to the entire empire, to exterminate, to kill, to destroy every last Jew, young and old, children, women, men, all in one day, the 13th day of other. And not only that, all of their booty can be plundered, all of their assets can be taken by anybody. And you understand why he added this? Because we saw by the Holocaust that the fact that the SS and the Germans allowed the Ukrainians and the Lithuanians and the Polacks and the Hungarians to... Take the assets of the Jewish people only increased their appetite to assist. So it was a brilliant device because not just kill the Jews for your anti Semitism, you also get a very nice car. Your neighbor had a beautiful coat and you can take the coat. Somebody has a home, somebody had other things. That's what happened throughout Eastern Europe and all of these communities. They allowed their assistants, the local Gentiles, to kill Ushlalom Lavois, to take. The big booty they took for themselves, you know, the the expensive art. And this, that they shipped back to Germany or Vienna. But the the shlalom lovers, they allowed the peasants to have. That's why he adds it here. Because this is an extra, an extra motivation. People don't realize it's very bidiok. It's an extra motivation. You'll kill and you can take whatever's in the house. You can take the clothes. You can take the money. You can take the property. You can move into the villa. You can move into this Jew's palace. This is what happens. This is how the Megillah describes the story. How do we understand this? What infuriated Haman? What infuriated Haman is that one man is not bowing down to him. Only one man, Mardechai. Everybody else did bow down to him. Whoever was part of the palace, whoever was part of the, the elite group in the palace, whoever was connected, everybody bowed down to him. There was one man, Mardechai, and then bow down. So you would think that Haman would kill Mardechai. Mardukai is infuriating you, he's driving you crazy. He will not recognize your authority. He will not recognize that you are the master of the world. Okay, so kill him. You don't want to only kill him. Kill his closest circle. Mordechai was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Kill his colleagues, kill his chavrusas, kill the Sanhedrin. I don't understand. Why do you want to kill the entire nation? Many Jews did bow down to him. I mean, the Jews that were there probably did bow down. Only Mordecai didn't bow down. What do you want from them? So you say, well, Mardukai has influence on people. Fine. So the people that you think Mardukai has influence on kill them. But it says that it was Mardukai who did it. So it's Mardukai's circle. So the Megillah asks this question. And the Megillah says, Ki higidu loyas They told him about the nation of Mardukai. What they tell him, Megillah doesn't say. What they tell him about the nation of Mardukai. But the Megillah gives a hint. They told him about the nation of Mardukai. Who's this nation? Not his inner circle. If it's his inner circle, if it's his family, if it's his friends, if it's Rosh Hashivas, if it's his Tadikim, then he wouldn't want to kill every last Jewish child and every last Jewish woman and man. In the whole empire, 127 provinces, who's the nation of Mardechai? Every Jew. And that's why in the next passage it says, Vayivakish Haman, his ambition was to destroy every last Jew. I'm Marduchai, the nation of Mardechai. Suddenly they get a new title. They're not the Jewish people anymore. They're the nation of Mardechai. What is it that Haman understood? What is it that Haman heard that infuriated him so much and gave him this ambition to destroy every last Jew? And the answer is that these two words, Am Mardukhai, really encapsulate the essence of the story. Haman wanted to understand where is this characteristic in Mardachai coming from? This resistance of Mardachai, that lo lo he will not bow down to Haman where, was, where does it come from? Who created it? How was it crafted? Is it maybe? Mardukai is simply a super intelligent man. His IQ is, is super high. He's just a very smart, wise person. And he's not ready to become subservient to Haman. He's just not ready to surrender himself to this narcissistic, egocentric, maniac who thinks he is the most powerful person in the world, sorry, I'm not going to be part of your, uh, of your my office club. I'm not going to dance kodim in front of you. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's Mordechai's lamdas. Mordechai's lamdas. Mordechai was a tremendous lamdan. He was a great Talmud Chalcha. It's his Torah scholarship that caused him not to bow down. Maybe it's his candidness, his deep wisdom, his sharpness. Maybe it's his religious zealotry. Mordechai was a really a Ruayid. He's not bowing down to a person. and Chazal say, no, he was wearing his pagan uh, his Aoress on it, his idolatry on it. Maybe it came because Mordechai was an ishruchni He was spiritually sensitive, deeply spiritually sensitive. And it didn't allow him to bow down to Hama. It's his sacredness, his aloofness, his spiritual sublimity, his kedusha, his metaphysical transcendence. The godliness that vibrated in him, the shekhinah that dwelled in him, those are the characteristics that live in Mardechai. Haman is asking himself, and that's why Mardechai will not bow down to him. And then Haman realized that's not it. Why didn't he want to kill Mardechai himself? They told him about the nation of Mardechai. They told him that this entire nation is called the nation of Mardechai. What did Haman learn? Haman learned that Mardukai is not bowing down to the inflated, infinite ego of Haman. That Mardukai is not ready to surrender to the evil, barbarity, to the sadism, to the narcissism of this man who couldn't tolerate any other metzius outside of him. A man who could not tolerate any one existence outside of him. The whole world is bowing down to you. One old Jew is not bowing down to you. Ignore him. No. (laughs) It's not enough. Right? Narcissistic personality disorder with a a lot of sadism and brutality involved. If there's one person who does not surrender to me, I can't exist. It's not just, I don't like the guy. I'm not going to invite him to the party. No. I need him dead. So Haman would think, it's Mordechai, get rid of him. Mordechai is a Jewish stubborn guy. You're a stubborn guy, butt heads with each other. Let's see who's more powerful, get rid of him. No, Haman understood something. That Mordechai's not readiness to surrender himself to this inflated ego, a person, who was so indoctrinated with, with, with toxic evil and cruelty, this characteristic is ingrained In every single Jew. It's ingrained in the entire nation. And the entire nation could therefore be called Am Mardachai, the nation of Mardachai. In other words, this quality in Mardachai is coming not because Mardachai as an individual. He's a godal. He's a genius. He's a spiritual saint. He's a tzaddik. He's a Rosh Hashiva. No. Then kill Mardachai. It's coming in Mardechai, not because he's unique. It's because he's a member of a certain nation, a certain people. And this people is what gives them this quality. And this quality is what makes them be called Am Mardukai. In other words, it's a nation that at the core of their being, they will not surrender their souls to Avodah Zorah. They will not embrace and acknowledge idolatry. They will not acknowledge a narcissistic, egotistical, tyrant, despot, and dictator who feels that he is the God of the world and will eclipse and want to suppress the real reality of Einoid Movadei, of Hashem's truth. So what's the conclusion of Haman if this is the case? If this quality of Mardukhai comes from the fact that he's a member of a people, and this is embedded in the DNA of the people. So Mardukha, Haman thinks, like, what am I going to kill Mardachai? <laughs> so what do I need? <laughs> I need to get rid of every last Jew. Why? Because it's I'm a Mardukha. Suddenly Haman realized that even the smallest Jewish child is a little Mardachai. It's <laughs> a clean Mardachai. So you'll get rid of Mardachai. You're still left with 18 million tiny Mardachais. Every girl, every boy, old, young, they live in this city, they live in that city, they may have Mardechai's IQ or none of it, his EQ or none of it. He suddenly realized that every Jew embodies that level of Kedusha, that level of spiritual truthfulness and authenticity. Because the soul of a Jew, as it always says, is a chilek elek kam mamish. It's a piece of divinity. The body of a Jew is kodesh kadashim, as the Zoyar says. The body is holy. Haman feels suddenly this holiness, this divinity that exists and is embedded in every single Jew. And this drives him mad. It's almost like If you study the world of, uh, if you're a naturalist, you study the world of mammals, reptiles, insects, you'll see even the smallest insects, they have this acute awareness when there's danger. (laughs) Right? They just, they did, they, why? It's part of their DNA. It's incredible how Hashem made nature. The tiniest little insect, instinct, the tiniest little insect has an instinct for survival. The tiniest animal, reptile, bird, insect, fish, bird, Tiny, weak, frail, doesn't look like they know anything. But when there's danger, they somehow are alert, they're sensitive to it, and they'll do anything to ensure their survival according to the devices that were given to them, and to propagate their genes. Even the smallest animal has this instinct of survival. You are a threat to me certainly more sophisticated mammals. It's an incredible thing that nature has. Today we know even trees have it, shrubs, plants. You know, they've, they've proven that, trees is very interesting, they're a There are trees that when insects come and start eating, so they release a message. It's like a, a perfume that the other trees, a fragrance other trees pick up on, and the other trees release noxious. Uh, fumes, so that the insects won't come close. So they actually realize that there is communication between trees. It's incredible. We call it speech. (laughs) They have their own type of dibu, their own type. The Gemara says about Rabbi Yochina Ben Zakkai that he knew sikhast kolim. He could listen to the conversations of palm trees and the conversations of other trees. And the conversations of animals and insects. Now, you look at the Gemarot and Sukkah. What conversations? Who's having conversations today in science? They're all having conversations all the time. We just don't have the tools to understand it. You have to have a deep sensitivity. This is certainly mammals, but not even mammals. Even things that we don't seem to—it doesn't even seem to be alive. What's my point? Even the most primitive insect is aware of something that's threatening it. Haman was no different. When Haman sees a Jewish child, he feels threatened. You say, Why? This child knows no Mardechai, he's not growing up like Mardechai, she's not growing up like Mardechai. Because Haman actually, evil, is allergic to goodness. Tuma feels Tahara. Khlipa feels Kedusha. Where does Haman feel this threat? Not only in Mardechai. He feels it in every single Jew because it's the truth. Because the infinite goodness and holiness embedded in the youngest Jewish child, boy or girl, and in every single Jew, is so authentic, it's so real, it's so genuine, that he feels as long as any one of these children exists, My existence is compromised. My existence is incomplete. My existence is miserable because they do not recognize and will never give legitimacy and will never surrender to my endless egotism and narcissism and tyranny and dictatorship and sadism and barbarism, all that came with Haman's endless ego. Where did we see this again? We saw it again 80 years ago in the second Haman of Jewish history. In Jewish history, throughout history, there were many tyrants who persecuted the Jewish people. But in terms of a recorded story of somebody who decided and really had an authentic ambition to exterminate every last Jew, we know two people. Haman, 2,500 years ago, and Adolf Hitler, Yemach just 80 years ago. A little more than two mortgages ago, not long. And you saw something fascinating. I heard this from uh, Mayor Koch. Remember Mayor Ed Koch? I heard this story from him. He once went, there was a group of mayors that went to visit, Eastern, to, went to visit Europe, and they were taking a tour into the Burghof, Hitler's home in Bavaria. You probably saw pictures of it. It's incredibly beautiful. And he said that the tour guide was taking them around and showing them around Hitler's home. A lot of the videos and pictures were taken there him and Eva Brown and the dog, and he had re- his dog, and they had receptions there. This is in the Bavaria, Bavarian mountains. And he said in his office, there was a huge globe, a beautiful globe. And he saw with a black marker on each country, there was a number. A number. America had a number. Every country had a number. Russia had a number. Every country had a number. Albania had one, the number one. So he asked the tour guide, what is this? So he said that Hitler, he wrote down on his globe how many Jews exist in every country. Because his goal was, I need to reduce it to zero. He says, in Albania, Albania had one Jew. He had one Jew, so he had to put it on his globe to be able to make Albania Judenfrei to destroy Khalilah the last Jew. What does this mean? In fact, in the early 40s, there were commanders and generals in the German army. He told Hitler that the resources you desperately need to win your war against the Allies, against the English, against the Soviets, against the Americans... You're squandering these resources to send the Jews to the gas chambers. But for him, that mattered much more than winning the war. In other words, more important than me winning and surviving and being victorious is killing my enemy, which is strange. You want to kill your enemies? that so You should have a better life. Where does this come from? You saw with Hitler what you saw in Haman. That the hatred was not reserved for Jews, only who were Kedoshim, Rosh Sadikim, Tzadikim, Rebus, Mekobolim, Erlich, Efruma, Yiden, which which saturated Eastern Europe. Some of your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, them too. But Jews who screamed, were atheists. We're not religious, we don't believe in Torah, we don't believe in Yiddishkeit. They married out, they had no connection to Judaism, maybe for generations. It didn't matter. The same glee with which they sent to the gas chambers, the holiest of the holy, the most religious of religious, the greatest Torah personalities, men and women of all the shtet and shtetlach and cities in Eastern Europe with the same glee and the same venom, he and the, the Nazis murdered every single last Jew, even that Jew who completely didn't identify with Judaism. Why? You'll say, well, that is what blind indoctrination, hatred, and evil is. Of course, it's all true. But why the same relationship to a Jew who's not identifying himself as Jews, his parents didn't, his grandparents, he would be very happy to tell you, I'm not Jewish. There were many Jews screaming, I don't believe in anything they believe in. And the answer to this is, as intensely painful as it is intensely true. And that is because he felt Hitler, like Haman, embodied the ultimate, ultimate evil. And he felt they both felt something very true: that the goodness in a Jew cannot be eliminated. I the Jew screams, I'm not really Jewish. They felt that that's only Hitzanius, it's only external. I am bowing down to Haman. You yourself are not really bowing down to Haman. Your facade are bowing down to Haman. Haman and Hitler are allergic to the Kedushas ha'uma, to the holiness of a nation and to the holiness in every Jewish child. And therefore, as long as there's the last Jew in Albania who lives, or there's one little girl who was discovered in a bunker, somewhere in Poland or in Lithuania, and Ukraine, you cannot rest until that little girl needs to be exterminated. How is she threatening your Reich? She's not threatening your Reich. She doesn't have philosophical opinions. She's not a Bolshevik. She's not a communist. She's not an American capitalist. Train her to be a, a, a national socialist fascist. But I'm Mardechai in every child, Haman sees this is just a little Mardachai. The Pasuk says in Tehillim, I become wise from my enemies. You want to know who somebody is? You want to know who you are? Look who hates you. You'll know who you are. You want to understand who somebody is? Look at their enemies. You'll right away know. When you see a people and you see that their enemies are Stalin and Hitler and Turku and Khmelanetsky and Pare and the Nebuchadnezzar, and every despot in history, the first enemy is the Jewish people, you know that this is a good people. If, if an Osama bin Laden hates you, an Ahmadinejad, an Asrallah, a Rawani hates you, some you're doing something right. So now you have to ask, who do they hate? Who did Stalin hate? Who did Hitler hate? The Kedoshim, the holiest, holiest Jews, of course them too. Every Jew identical. When the Hamas sends their missiles... Who do they want to target? If you're a Jew, you're fair. It's good fair play. Why? Because there's an emas that the kedusha of Klal Yisrael is so profound and it's embedded in every single person, no matter their age, no matter their knowledge, no matter their persuasion, and even no matter their behavior. Afalpisha shachat Yisrael who means That the Kedushos Yisrael is embedded, it's in my DNA. And Hitler said, you can't, he said this, you cannot, he didn't use the word DNA, you cannot change their DNA, you cannot change their core. He was coming from a place of evil. Because evil hates goodness, it hates it, and it senses it like a little animal that senses danger, and it will do anything to get rid of the last Jew, and somehow he cannot have Menucha until... That happens. That's why the Gemara says in Megillah, "Da'fiyadala." If you want to understand Haman, the Gemara gives a very interesting metaphor: that there was a man who had a big ditch in his garden, and he wanted to fill the ditch, but he didn't have sand. And one day he was walking, and he saw in somebody else's garden a mound, and he said, "Can I pay you ten thousand silver shekel to buy your mound of sand so I could fill my ditch?" The man says, I've been looking for years for somebody to get rid of this mound. Take it for free. And everybody was happy. The man with the mound got rid of his mound, and the man with the ditch filled the ditch. And the Gemara says, who are these two people? Ahasverish and Haman. Haman has a ditch. He comes to Ahasverish. He says, a mound. Ah, oh, 10,000 shekel. Give me the mound. Ahasverish says, you don't have to pay me. <laughs> the money is yours. I'm trying to get rid of the mound. What's the Gemara trying to say? A mound, a ditch? What's this metaphor adding? Just say there were two anti-Semites, they both hated Jews. When the Gemara gives a metaphor, it's to explain something. Besides the fact, Haman, in the story, in the parable, you want the mound, right? You want the earth in your garden to fill the ditch. Haman didn't want the Jews, he wanted to exterminate the Jews. But I think now you can understand. Haman has a ditch in his heart. The Chazal here are inimitably expressing one of the deepest truths of anti-Semitism. Haman has a hole, literally a hole, and I'm trying to fill that hole. Because if there's a Jew, the Pasik says in Yeshaya, Atam Aidain Um Hashem, God says, You are my witnesses. As long as there is a Jew, there is a witness to the presence of the Rebain Shalila into the world. Either Jew says, I'm not a witness. You are, you're essentially a witness. You're a piece of Kedusha. You're a manifestation of Hashem in this world. Haman says, get rid of, kill the witness. And then my ditch will fill up. My void will be gone. The void, Hitler once told somebody, he said that the Jews introduced two problems into history. They circumcised the world. They circumcised the world physically through a bris and they circumcised the world emotionally by introducing conscience. Conscience circumcises the world. What's conscience? Conscience means you're not allowed to kill. You're not allowed to lie. You're not allowed to steal. You're not allowed to violate. Might doesn't make right. There are moral limits. There are moral boundaries. There's respect for life. In other words, it's not just the law of the jungle. You do it because you can. You have to know if it's right or wrong. They circumcised the world. In other words, they they, they distorted. They, they, They ruined creativity by saying there's something called conscience. In Hebrew, it's called matzpun. Matzpun. You know what matzpun is? Conscience. We turned it into guilty conscience. <laughs> he didn't use the word guilty conscience. The, the idea of conscience, the idea that there's an ashamed, there's a sensitivity, there's right and wrong. You can't tell a lioness, you know, that sheep is so cute, and she was just born yesterday. Maybe do a Yom Kippur today, lioness. You'll fast. Your kids will fast. Fast three days, like Esther. Go, Go talk to the lioness. You can't blame the lioness. These are her genes. But a person does have that ability. It's called morality. Haman knows he can't live. This ditch is so deep. He's a deep person. And he knows that this ditch exists. As long as there's a Jew, he cannot fully celebrate life. So what does he do? He comes to A Ahasuerus is not so sophisticated like Haman. Ahasuerus just knows that there's a mound. The Jews bother him. They're just a strange nation. You always bump into them. That's a chashverish. That's another type of anti-Semitism. More, more, more simple. It's based on Haman, but a is not so complicated. Haman, was a, uh, Haman, had, a, Haman had, a, had a deep side to him. You see how he knew Jewish history. And the Gemara says, Haman was a machashev. He had some spiritual wisdom. He understood things. Haman feels the issue. You've got to fill the ditch. How? If there's no Jews, there's no ditch, there's no void, there's no God, there's no moral law, there's no right, there's no wrong. And suddenly my barbarity, my sadism, my egocentricity can rule. And that explains why Mardochai didn't bow down to him. Why did Mardochai not bow down to him? Mardochai, you don't want to bow down? Go sit at home. What do you have to sit here? And Haman walks by, you don't go bow down to him. What if to infuriate him? The answer is Mardochai understood the truth. The Jew who thinks that by not bowing down to the anti-Semite, that's what creates anti-Semitism, that the Jew who assimilates and the Jews that says, I'll bow down to you, suddenly that Jew is loved. it doesn't work that way. The worst hatred came from Germany where the Jews were mostly assimilated. On the contrary, they feel essentially that your DNA is holy. There's a Kedusha there. And now when you tell me that you're like me, it only exasperates, it only infuriates me even more. Mardoch knew that if there's any hope for the Jewish people, could like Rabbi Akiva said, it's not that the fish should come out of the water. It's not going to save the fish. The greatest salvation of the Jewish people is their divinity, their connection to Hashem. Not bowing down to Haman doesn't turn Haman into a friend because the most secular assimilated Jew he sees as the same Jew. The only difference is here it gets even more infuriated. Why? Because now you're trying to fool me and you're trying to deceive me. At least tell me who you are. Be honest with me. And you saw something else. And that is, there wasn't just a ch- hatred to the Jewish soul; it was also a hatred to the Jewish body, the gof. And we saw this also by the Haman of the previous generation. It wasn't enough to kill every Jew. He needed to fee- he needed to destroy the bodies. After the gas chambers, they all went into the crematoriums. There shouldn't be a Zeche to the Yiddish gof. On one level, it's because erase the evidence. The obsession of it had to do with something deeper. It tells you about the Kiddushas Haguf of a Jew. A Haman and a Hitler are not just allergic to a Jew. They're not just allergic to a Jewish soul. They're not just allergic to somebody who has the name Jew. They're allergic even to the physical manifestation of a Jew. You would think it's a goof. It's a body. What's in a body? It's a body like everybody else. It says in Tanya, when it says, He shows us, what did He choose? yom It's the goof. It's the goof that was chosen. And the explanation is the neshama didn't have to be chosen. It's l'chadchila different. Choice is between two things that are similar. You want to go buy a house. And there's two houses. You have to choose this house from this house. You want to get a car. There's two cars. You have to choose one car from another car. But if somebody comes to buy a house and the person says, oh, you could choose between this car... And this house. I didn't come to buy a car. I came to buy a house. You came to buy a computer. And there's one computer. He said you could choose between buying a computer and buying a broom. I didn't come to buy a broom. I came to buy a computer. Choice means two things are similar. You have to choose. That's why by the neshama of a Jew, there's nothing to choose. If Hashem wants the neshama of a Jew, it's a different type of soul. So where is the p'chira? The p'chira is in the guf. Who feels it? The evil feels it. The evil feels the kedusha and a guf, in a Jewish body. And that's why, to save a body, you mechalal Shabbos and your over and all the mitzvahs of Torah. The kohen God leaves him kippur in the middle of kedusha to go save a child that's in a suffix sakana. Why? Because the kedushas haguf manifests godliness, the holiness of a Jewish, the visceral body, the physical, material body. Even though it seems simple, it's just physical. But that guf has in it infinite divinity, and that's why those who tragically embody negativity in the world, have that score and that hatred to the soul as much as to the body and to the body as much as to the soul. It's an incredible testimony. What do you learn from these people? You learn from, you learn from your enemy's wisdom how you have to look at a Jew and how you have to look at a Jewish child. Because the reason that Hashem allows there to be evil in the world is in order to be able to show us what goodness is. To be able to contrast it and to understand how to perceive goodness. To have the goodness vanquish the evil. So when we see such evil in the world, what is it for? It's to be able to understand the goodness of a yid, The holiness of a Jew. And without differentiations, every little one of them, every last one of them is Am That's what infuriates Haman and that's why he will not rest until he could convince Achashvedesh. That every last Jew has to be eliminated, has to be exterminated. Only then could Haman rest. Now, this is evident in a very strange and enigmatic medrash. If you look in the third to the last source on the bottom, Esther Rabbah Parshazain, there's a medrash rabbah on the Megillah. It's called Medrash Rabbah Esther. Listen to the medrash quotes. The medrash gives us the following statement Hashem told Haman, you're a fool. You're the most foolish man in the world. Ania marty la hashmidam kevayachol v'lo yachalti. I also tried to kill the Jews. I was a failure. Shenemar tehilim kovav ayoymer la hashmidam lulei Moshe bechirei umatz ba peretz lefonov la hashiv chamasim God wanted after the creation of the golden calf to destroy them, but Moshe stood up. And he, 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 he challenged it. It never happened. You think you're going to do it? So the, listen to this conversation. Hashem tells Haman, you think you're the first Chachem? I tried already. I was a colossal failure. Didn't work. I tried. I told Moshe, I'm done. Finished. They're gone. Moshe said, it's not happening. It didn't happen. Now you think you, Haman, you think you're going to do it? This is what the Midrash says. What are the sages telling us? What does this even mean? And what does it mean? Hashem says, you know, I tried, it didn't work. It's almost like, what is this, empathy towards Haman? Like, come on, let's just face it, we're both going to fail at this. And what does it even mean? Hashem says, I tried and it didn't work. Really? Who stood up to him? Who stood up to God? How do we even understand Hashem saying, I was incompetent? What is he telling this to Haman? It's almost like, you know, we're partners. I tried this. Year. You know when you tell somebody going into business, oh, I tried this business years ago. Stay out of it. What is this type of camaraderie? And he calls Haman a shaita. Why is he a shaita? He's a rush, He's not a shaita. He's a rush. He calls shaita. You're not a rush, You're a rush, also. But first and foremost, you're a shaita. What's the difference? Russia means wicked. Shaita means an idiot. How do you say an idiot in English? <laughs> Doesn't work as well as in Yiddish. <laughs> I also know the word in English. Shaita means you're not only a Russia, you have a simple lack of understanding of basic chemistry, basic truth. If you look in the next medrash, Rus Rabba Psichta, the medrash Rabba on Rus, the beginning of Rus, the opening to Rus, Gimel. My children are stubborn people. They're always refusing, they're very stubborn people. I can never destroy them. I can't bring them back to Egypt. I said, we're not going back to Egypt. And I can't exchange him for another nation. what am I supposed to do? So we're gonna to have to work it out. <laughs> so here we see two madrashim. And one he admits to human incompetence, and then he says, I push can't, I can't destroy, I can't take them back to Mitzrayim. I can't exchange them for somebody else. Yeah, people get divorced and they marry somebody else. Canish This medrash, the Chazal are bringing out the essence of the whole story of Purim. Hashem says, I can't destroy a Jew. It doesn't begin with the physical. It begins with the spiritual. The divinity of a Jew is indestructible because just like Hashem remains Hashem, a Jew is one with Hashem. So you'll say, but the Jew destroyed it. It's indestructible. This is who he is. This is who she is. I could change a lot of things about myself. At least I could try. One thing I can't change. Tell a person, change the color of your eyes. Good luck. I, should, I change the color of my hair. Good luck. I could dye my hair. I could cut my hair. I could dye my hair with a hundred colors. People do it. Change your DNA sequence. I want to become a chimpanzee. I can behave like one. I want to become a horse. I could try to be one. People do it. Rav Shalom Shvadron, Yovid Shalom he was the maggot of Yerushalayim. He was very funny. So he once came to New York and he told a story. He said, Abbache once came to me and started to cry, why didn't Hashem make me like an animal, like a behema? It would have been so much easier. He said, a behema, a cow, an ox, a horse, doesn't have to eat with a plate, with a fork, with a knife. You can eat everything enough to pay for your food. He said, you'll forgive me. He says, he doesn't have to search for a bathroom when he needs to tend to his needs. He doesn't have to get dressed in the morning. There's no davening. There's no Shabbos. Okay, Purim, Yom nothing. Life is good. And he says, the boy looks at me and starts crying. And he would say in Yiddish with a sing-song. On the boche the is he says, Shalom, He turns to God and he says, minish gemach Master of the world, why didn't you create me like a behemoth? So I said, I looked at the boy and I gave him a beautiful glut, a beautiful caress. And I said, Bacher, Bacher, du hast nicht bist a My dear student, you have no reason to cry, you are a behemoth. So it's a good anecdote, but the fact is, a person could behave a certain way. I cannot change my DNA sequence, at least not the resources that we have available today. It's actually, uh, that's actually a very sensitive topic about manipulating genes and manipulating DNA, but certainly in the days of Haman, this information was completely inaccessible. So Hashem says about every Jew, we say it before Pekaiovus, after Pesach, from Yeshaya Novi, Ba'ameich kulem La lo'erlam yershu Natzer neitzer matoi, a branch of my bush, my plant, the work of my hands, in which I am so, I'm, of what I'm, of so, so, someone I'm so proud of, I boast in this person. You can't destroy the elakus of a yid. This is who he or she is. It's your etzim nefesh This is your core identity. I could color, I could put on masks, I could put on a hundred masks, I can deny who I am, I can repress who I am, I can suppress who I am, I can run away from who I am, I can do it all and do it successfully too. But one thing I cannot become, not me, I can't. I can't become a fed, I can't become a horse, I'm sorry, I have nothing against horses, I just can't do it. That's what the Novi Malachi says. Ani Hashem I, Hashem, have not been destroyed. You, the children of Yaakov, have not been destroyed. Hashem says, I can't destroy myself. <laughs> I can't destroy a Jew, which is Hashem. A Jew is an Avra. The are says in time of an Avra, a limb from the limbs of the Shechina. This is true spiritually. He's describing. Change them with another nation. You have to understand what a Jew is. A, Jew is, a Jew's holiness is not based on the fact that he or she chose at some point, I want to live a certain lifestyle. If so, Haman should kill the people who chose it. A Jew is divine in his or her very core. You can't change the color of your eyes, You can't change the color of your soul. And the holiness is manifested in the soul, in the body, in the very presence. Atam Ada, you're a witness of the Shekhinah in this world. If you can't destroy a Jew spiritually, you can't destroy the godliness, automatically, physically, is indestructible. Because it goes together. You can't destroy Hashem, you can't destroy his gene. You're a child. Now I want to ask you, what can your child do to make any of you sitting here and look at him and say, you're not my child anymore? Anybody? What exactly? He could do stupid things, we know that. It could be driven by a lot of trauma, a lot of pain, whatever it is. But a child remains a child. And even those parents who unfortunately don't have the perspective or don't have the emotional resources or don't have the guidance and the mentorship, and they do alienate themselves from the children, sleepless nights they have. I never met a mother telling me I don't speak to my child. My child doesn't speak to me. We threw him out of the house when he was 16. And since then, life has been Ghanedin. I never, unless the person is bashed, completely sick and they're nabach themselves in a very deranged situation and just not aware of what's happening in themselves. Why not? Because a child is one etzem with you. Say, don't be me anymore. Your child is it's one etzem. It's not just you grew up in the same house, he does kibbudava aim. Those are all wonderful and amazing. That's all expressions. But the core is etzem. The etzem is, it's, a, etzem means atzmi. It's, it's the bone, it's the essence, it's the core. It's the quintessence. That's why the Gemara says in Kiddushin, Reb Meir says, what if Jews are not behaving like children? So Reb Meir says, Hashem says, Bein kach, Atam bein kach, atem even children who are completely alienated, they go and create idolatry, meaning they tell you, you're not my mother, you're not my father, God, you're not my God. God says, I can't, they're still my children. And it's interesting that here, in this case, the are Bar is like Reb Meir, that they're always children. In other words, the relationship is always intact, it's always essential. So when the Pasik says in Yishai, last week, This nation I created, they tell my story, they tell my praise. It's their very creation tells my story. If you want to see the greatest holiness in the world, stand in front of a mirror. You don't believe me? Ask Haman. Ask Hitler. Ask Arafat. Ask them. The greatest Kedusha in the world, tell a Jew, stand in front of the mirror, you'll see it. And it's not true about some Jews, it's true about every single one. This This is his or her core. Ah. If this is what was happening, if this is what Haman was sensing, if this is what Haman was feeling... We could understand when he comes to Marduch and he says, Yeshnei am echad, there's a singular nation, Mephuzadu meferred bein But they're all scattered around. It's not worth to have them. He contradicts himself. First he calls them an am echad. It's a holistic, unified nation. Then he says, Mephuzadu meferred bein amin. Half of them are assimilated, they're here, they're there, they're part of everybody. Which, which, which taina is Haman bringing as a source to justify annihilation? You could say, Haman was saying, They're distinct, they're segregated, they're Jews, they look like Jews, I get that. But then he says, no, they're assimilated, they're trying to take over, (laughs) they're everywhere. Which one is it? The answer is doesn't make a difference. (laughs) Jews always scratch their heads, why do they hate us? Maybe if I change my nose, maybe if I take off my yarmulke, I take off my payas, I do this, I do that. Yeshna there could be segregated people. Mefuzit Hamman and Hamman fills the ditch. He feels the ditch. And therefore, he needs to fill the ditch. It's called filling the void. The expression in English and psychology, filling the void, begins with the story of Hamman and Gemara that there was a Baal Baal HaChritz. There was a ditch and he had to fill it. So you scream to me, No, I'm not the Jew. I'm not the real thing. <laughs> you are the real thing. The one who has to know it is the Jew has to know it. Haman teaches us in the good, Moshav says you see two paths, good and evil. The evil is there to teach you about the goodness. To teach you how to look at yourself, how to look at your child, how to, how to look at Kalal Yisrael, and how to look at an individual Jew no matter where or who he or she is. How they grew up, what their persuasion is, and even how they behave today. It doesn't mean it doesn't need tikkun, doesn't need correction. But it means that the essential holiness is non negotiable, it's absolute, and therefore ultimately, Torah and mitzvahs is part of their life, and it's going to come out. Bal At some point, every soul is connected, it's going to come, either sooner or later. An interesting thing how do you spell Yehudim? Yud Hevav Dalid Yud Mem. The word Yehudim is introduced the first time in Megillus Esther. Till Megillus Esther, we're called Yisrael, Bnei Yisrael. Children of Yisrael, Bnei Yaakov, Am Yisrael, Klai Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, that's our name, Yisrael, comes from Vayishlach. In Megillah, the first time we're called Yehudim. Why? It's interesting. The, the, the whole Tanakh, you do Yehudim. Today, we call Jews Yehudim. So the literal interpretation is because the Megillah is the first book that was written. Where? It's written in Persia, after the destruction of the first Baisamikdash. The ten tribes were already assimilated. They were gone. So who was left? Yehuda and Binyamin. Mardachai came from Binyamin and he came also from Yehuda. Ish Yehudi, the Gemara says. So they're called Yehudim because most Jews came from Shevet Yehuda but they also came from Binyamin. Those were the two tribes that weren't expelled. The Gemara says Yehudi also means Mardachai is called Ish Yehudi because he was Mardachai. He, he acknowledged, he embraced Teire and he denied Avedazara. Ish Yehudi. The word Yehuda comes from the word Haidah, gratitude, and from submission and maida, I acknowledge. Acknowledge This the Megillah brought out that every Jew is a Yehudi, ish Yehudi. So how do you spell Yehudi? Yud hey, vav, dalad, Yud Mem. But six times in the Megillah, Yehudim are spelled with two yuds. If you'll see the Megillah, if you're having a Megillah, you'll see six times it's spelled with two yuds. And the first time it's spelled with two yuds is. When mardachai when Haman gives out the decree and he gives money to by Yehudim la'abdom, to destroy Yehudim. So there was a, a maskil, there was a, it was a secular Jew, he called himself an apikiris, a heretic, and he went to the Tzamech tzedek and he asked him why. So he said, because there's two types of Yehudim. There's two Yuds. There's Yetzir Toiv and there's Yetzir Two Yuds. And we know that there's ten faculties in the soul. So there's the Yud, the ten faculties of the divine soul, and the ten faculties of the animal soul. The gzera of Haman wasn't only on the Yehudim of the Yetzir Tov. It was the same gzera on the Yehudim of the Yetzir Hara. It wasn't only on one type of Yud, it was on every type of Yud. Yud is also Ayyid, Is Ayud? Ayyid, Yehudi, Ayud? The reason Yidin are called Yidin is because Yehud, Yud. it's the Yud. And the Yud is the beginning of Hashem's name Yud and He and Vav and He. There was once by, uh, by uh, one of the, the great rebbes in Poland, so there was once a Tish, so some, it was pushy, so somebody was on somebody else. So the, 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 the Rebbe who was there says, well, What are what you on him? So he says, Two Yuds together is Hashem's name Yud, Yud is Hashem's name. So he says, There's a difference. Hashem's name is Yud-Yud together side by side. When you have one Yud on top of another Yud, it's a safe Pasuk. It's the end of a Pasuk. When one Yud is on another Jew, then it's the end of a Pasuk. A Yud near a Yud, that's Hashem's name. So you have two Yuds, but you have different types of Yudin. Don't think that those Yudin, Haman said, oh, you're, you're, you're part of my team, you're good. You, you, you believe in what I believe. That's not how it works, but Yehudim La'abdam. And then Messiah said, told this Jew, you'll see, by you will be the same thing. Because he was very antagonistic to Judaism and Yiddish. And he says, you'll see the same thing. You'll be challenged by life and you'll see that your truth is going to come out. Kachav, <laughs> it's the whole story what happened. He fell ill, he took, it became a tremendous year of Shammayim afterwards. He became a new person. That's the Bayuhudim, the two Yuds. If now we understand, once we understand this, now you'll understand very clear the Adolayadah. If this was the essence of what happened on Purim, so now when we celebrate the salvation of Purim, what did it bring out? What Hashem told Haman, I couldn't destroy them, you're not going to destroy them. Haman, you have to be a Chachem, not a Shaita. You have to know, a Shaita doesn't know facts. You have to know what they call the facts of life. The facts of life is that the godliness of a Jew is indestructible. And that's why the Jew is indestructible. And that's why the Jewish people are indestructible. And even if Khalilah the times of Gzair, is that a Jew, or a big portion of Jews, like by Hitler, a third of the Jewish people were physically destroyed, not only is it not that their neshamas are not destroyed, but Klal Yisrael as a body, as an entity, is indestructible. And that's why, ad nobody can do it, even though the Haman tried and Hitler tried and different... One's tried in different ways, even though not with the same dramatic ambitions like Haman and Hitler. So what came out at Purim? At Purim, the Jewish people suddenly realized, in the good sense, from Haman, they realized who they are. The Jews who were Nenu M'sudas Russia. Rasha. They were Quelling and paschenzich with their photo ops in the Shushan White House with HaShverish. He invited us to the meal. And the Jews that bowed down to the Tzalem, and suddenly they saw... The zelbe, the same anti-Semitism to Mardechai, the big tzaddik, Mardechai at tzaddik, is to every single Jew, the Jew who hangs out in the Shushan, part, the Shushan parties and took photo ups with Haman and hung it up in his office and he framed it and laminated it and sent it out on all the WhatsApps that he was holding Haman's hand by the party and they were smiling together. Finally, we made it. After thousands of years of being segregated and crazy and parasites, we finally made it. And suddenly the Jews realized who they are in the positive sense. That's what came out. And because they realize who they are, therefore Haman ultimately can't win. Haman was defeated and the Jewish people emerged. From the Zeirah itself, the Jewish people managed to shed their layers. And that's why Esther told Mardukha, we spoke a few weeks ago, Leich knoysa skola Yehudim, anem you remember, go gather all the Jews. Haman didn't want to, uh, didn't think he could gather all the Jews and fast. There's Jews who went to the party, they're not going to fast three days. But, but Esther said, Leich knoys Kola Yehudim, because she knew. That at the core, even those who went to the party, Haman knew the truth. They're all little Mardukhahs. Just didn't come out. And in a time of challenge, ultimately it comes out. So she's told Mardukhah, trust, trust me. You can gather all of the Jews and Mordechai did it and he did it successfully. This happened on Purim and never happened another time. That the Jewish people should discover through Haman, Venapaychuk, The v'napaychu is not just, it was a transformation that Haman was killed and the Jews were saved. It was a v'napaychu in the Jewish soul. They themselves were transformed. From Haman's evil, they learned about their own goodness. From Haman's hatred, they learned how much God loves them. From Haman's anti-Semitism, they learned about their own truth, their own identity, their own holiness. If this is the case... So Rava said, The difference by a Jew between Haman and Mordechai is not based on knowledge. It's not based on intellectual analysis and comprehension on the person who's a scholar, who's a city is, who gets it, who's immersed in it, and they come to a point where they say, Ah, Haman, not good. Mordechai is good. That's all beautiful. But Purim brings out that the relationship is far deeper than Yoda. Even when the person l'chaot is shiker. <laughs> There's no das. The truth comes out. But not because of das. The chiyuv of Purim, the ability of Purim is what comes out is then is the Etzem, The core relationship of a Jew with Hashem. The core infinite holiness that transcends my awareness of it, it's not a relationship because I'm conscious of it, because I know it, because I'm cognizant of it. Reach a point, you don't know the difference in our is your very core, it constitutes your very essence, it constitutes your etz On the contrary, in das, in self-consciousness and awareness, I could be confused. People are confused. What do I believe in? What don't I believe in? Who am I? Who am I not? What's good? What's not good? When a Jew reaches a place of Adeloyad, where you shut down the yada, you go deeper than the yada. who are you beyond the way you process yourself to yourself? When the Pnebius, when the Atzmius, when the Etzim comes out, then the Jew is Echad, Yachid, and Meyuchad, completely one and unified with the Rabbi Nishalei. Give a simple metaphor, maybe not such a simple metaphor, there was a shatkin, a matchmaker, called up two families in Muncie. One had a boy, one had a girl, and he said, I think it's a good shidduch. Okay. They met, and the, the courtship didn't go so well. The shatkin felt that there's potential error. So he called up the Kalas family, and he sold them the Brooklyn Bridge and the Tappan Zee Bridge. He called up the Khassan's family, and he sold them the Whitestone Bridge and the Williamsburg Bridge, and another few bridges. And they decided to go out again. Still didn't work out. The shatchin had a gift of gab. He met with the boy and he met with the girl and he explained it's only two times and you have to this and etc etc etc. As it says in Svarim, Shatkin is an acronym: Sheker Doiver, Kesef Noitel, speaks lies and takes money. If there's any shatchin here, it's present company excluded. This is not my chiddush. It says in old books. So anyway, he gets them back together. Miracle happens after a few dates. Heptungei. And Baruch Hashem it worked, they decide to get engaged, they put up a chuppah, they get married, everything is wonderful, the wedding is over, the chassan and Kala go to the apartment that was rented for them. They come into the apartment after the wedding, it's already after the mitzvotans, it's 3.30 in the morning, they're exhausted, and who's there in the apartment? The shadchan. They say, what are you doing here? He says, I was just evicted from my apartment because I haven't paid rent in a few years, and I know you have an extra bed here, so if you don't mind, I'm going to stay here. The chassan looks at the shatkin and says, listen, you know, we just got married tonight. It would be nice if we could have a, a little private time. Maybe you can go find somewhere else to sleep. He says, what type of chutzpah is this? I belong in this house. He says, why do you belong in this house? He says, who's the one who made the relationship between you? Who's the one who created the connection between you? If not for me, where would you two be? You would be in completely different planets. You're still in different planets maybe, but at least you're married. What is it? Mars and Venus? What is it? Huh? Yeah. Mars and Venus, okay. I'm the one who brought you together. What do you mean I don't belong here? Without me, there's no glue. I'm the one. So the Kala looks at him and says, "Shatran, here's a check. <laughs> Go find yourself a bed. It's true. You created, you initiated the relationship, but it's really now, let's just be together, a husband and a wife without the Shatchan. Every person has a mind. That mind is a special gift. It's a gift. The mind has to be used. That mind is the shatchan between the soul and Hashem. It's the mind of a person that makes us ask questions. It makes us curious. It makes us inquisitive. It asks: where am I, where do I come from? Why am I here? How did the world come about? What is responsible for the infinite, intricate intelligence in every cell, in every neuron, in every atom, in every electron? The mind is the tool in us that allows us to search, to explore, to open ourselves up to transcendence. In that sense, the mind is an unbelievable shatchan. And it's not easy, it's always negotiating. Because <laughs> the eight Sahara puts in doubts. Amalek is the Gematria Suffolk, 240. And the mind has to deal with it. The shatkin has to always say, come back, come back, come back. <laughs> Don't run away. Once a year, the Chassan and the Kala turn to the shatkin and they say, do us a favor. <laughs> Take a break for one day. Yada. You're a good person. Yesterday we enjoyed you. Tomorrow we'll enjoy you. But once a day, allow us to have absolute intimacy. Anila Aniladoydi li. In that sense, Purim is just like him, Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day. The Gemara says, Rebbe says, "Itzumar Shalyoy Mechapur. The day itself atones. Yom Kippur is the day of Yechidah Shebanefesh, of absolute oneness. Purim embodies that, but even deeper, because Yom Kippur, the oneness is expressed through transcendence, through segregation, through asceticism. We're like Malachim. You dress in white and you sit in Shulah Holda and you don't engage in the physical world. The Chidish of Purim is that the oneness is manifested in the body, in the visceral body. Because Haman didn't only want to kill the neshama, he wanted to kill the goof. He recognized that the Ain Saif of Hashem is manifested in the goof. So put him, I don't have to run to my neshama to celebrate my oneness in my goof, in my body. How do we celebrate put him? I give you a gift of food. It doesn't have to be candies. It could be an orange. <laughs> Can even be kale and spinach. I'm giving you good ideas. Mishlah means the, the you know the more the more cavities the better for the dentist to give them parnasa. Maybe also an Indian to give dentists parnasa. But what's the idea of Mishlay Ihmanas? Yeah. I, I give food. What are you doing with food? We eat food. Matanas Lavyanim. Sudas Purim, v'simcha. Why? Because that's the whole khiddle of Purim, that the visceral experience of the Jew is a manifestation of a of godliness. So we tell the Shatkin not that I'm Purim, there's no Haman, Mardachai becomes, becomes Chas V'shala Muhammad and Haman becomes a Marduchai. Then there's no Purim. It's that my relationship to truth is not limited through the Shatkin. My relationship with my spouse is not before I call my wife, I say, What? Well, I have to call the Shatkin." The Shatkin at the first date, it's a good idea. Second date, it's also a good idea. Sometime later, it's also a good idea. At some point, you got to talk to the person you're married to. Can't always go back to the shatchen. Sometimes you need a shatchen. You're right. When there's a crisis, there's a challenge, sometimes you need somebody in the middle. It's called an arbitrator, a professional, a rabbi, a a rabbi, an author, whatever it is. A person to help. It's a shatchen. You need somebody to bring two sides closer. But in an experience of one, is, it's not that I know the difference. It's much deeper than Yediyah. It's much, it's much higher, higher than Yediyah. And the truth is, it's not just when we talk about the Jewish people and Klal Yisrael and the world. It's also true individually with a person. And here is with Avodah Purim, in that sense, is the profoundest day of the year, even deeper than Yom Kippur, because if I ask any person, "Do you know yourself?" and most people will say, "Of course, I know myself," but isn't that the problem? The way I know myself is through knowledge. But can I know myself without knowing myself? That's called Adelo Yada. You see, when I know myself through knowing myself, I don't know myself. Because my self-awareness, that makes a lot of sense, right? Okay, you don't have to follow it. Adelo better not to follow. Just let it sink in. <laughs> That's the point. We don't stop with mental chatter. We analyze ourselves, right? I, know, I want to know myself through knowing myself. But that's the problem. Because the self-awareness that comes through self-knowledge is always filtered through the intellectual tools that I bring into my self-awareness. Did you understand what I just said? Okay, because I didn't. But, but it made sense on some level, I hope. And what happens if my story is somewhat traumatized? and what happens if my narrative my narrative is sometimes blemished all my self awareness is being processed through that filter of yada and some of us remain stuck our whole lives in that and we don't even realize it and that's the internal mental chatter right am i good am i bad was it a good sheer was it a bad sheer they liked it. i'm never speaking again in my life you know that mental chatter that, that narrator that sits in you right and has commentary constantly 24 hours a day and we try to distract ourselves from it but it's all internal because i'm processing myself always through that yada through that self awareness which is in itself part of the challenge because it's being filtered through the tools that i use to tell me who i am and who i'm not it's called self conceptualization it's the self that becomes a concept that's experienced through my yada you didn't understand what i just said <laughs> Okay, process it. Don't process it too much. Don't process it too much. In that sense, the hardest thing in life is Adelayada. Adelayada is not as simple as getting drunk. That's not Adelayada. That's sometimes getting worse into Yada. That's distracting myself more. Adelayada is an the Pnimis. It's a very, very deep Avoidah. It's a very deep Avoidah the Lechayim that they said, said to drink up him is <laughs> not to get drunk. So that a person completely becomes chaotic and wild and violent, and they're making a mess everywhere, and they're using language that's it's completely not connected to Purim. That's connected to our own frustrations and our own voice that we have to deal with. Purim is the Avodah, can I really let go of all those things that limit me because of the stories I tell myself about myself? I'm afraid, I can't, I'm insecure, this is horrible, I'm living in my own orbit of trauma and I don't even know of any other orbit, so everything gets processed through it. To let go of that, the trauma is not going to want me to let go of it. Why will he not want me to get let go of it? Because that's where Haman comes in. And that's why it's so important to remember Amalek in every generation and blot out Amalek. Stop remembering him so you won't have to erase him. You know, there was once a rabbi, he was talking to his congregation, and every five seconds he gave a pound on the bimah. They said, what are you doing? He says, every time I give a clap, another Jew intermarries. So somebody screamed, so stop clapping. <laughs> remember Amalek so you can erase him. Stop remembering him and you won't have to erase him. I forgot about Amalek. No, there's a mitzvah to remember him. It's like, Don't think about the pink elephant. What is everybody going to do? Think about the pink elephant. Don't think about Amalek. So, what are you going to do? Think about Amalek. It's a bad strategy for erasing something from your memory. The answer is Amalek is something that keeps on coming up because Amalek is what keeps the Das in prison. The word Amalek comes from Malak. You know what Malika is? Malika, what they did with a bird. You ever heard Malak? Removing the head of the bird from the body so there's no vagus nerve that allows the flow. So what happens is I can understand everything, but I'm still stuck. My nervous system is stuck. My brain is stuck. Amalek doesn't have a problem with knowledge. You could know everything, but my Das is stuck in a way that it cannot influence me. There's a disconnect. The only way I can deal with it is Adaloyada. I have to be able to let go of the Das. I have to be able to trust my own layada to let go of all these defenses. And it's a, it's, 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 it's a profound transformation that's very subtle, very internal, very authentic to allow my core to come out. And when the core comes out, you will never see something as beautiful, as gorgeous, as infinite, because it's a manifestation of Hashem in the world. That's why you'll see in the last source, the last source, What's the source of Haman in Taira? Interesting question. The Gemara wants to know the source of Haman. What do we need a source for Haman? Because everything in the world has a source in Torah, It's the blueprint of existence. What's the source for Haman? So the Gemara says, The Pasuk Eberatius. Hashem says, Who told you, Adam, that you're not wearing clothes? Hamin ha ates, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat, did you eat? Hamin is letters Haman. What does the Gemara mean? Hamin means from. Min, Hamin, from the tree. Haman is Haman. It's the same letters, hey memnun. That's the source of Haman and Torah. You see what's happening here? Haman is the source of the eats. You ate from the tree. Hamin ha What was the name of the tree? Eits hadas. Was avoid of Purim. Adelo yada. Where did Rav get these words? Adelo because he knew the challenge is Haman holds on to Eitz sadas. And that's why the, what Harvayna told Achashvedish is, take the Eitz of Haman and put Haman on that tree. On Purim you have to have the courage to take Haman. What's Haman? The inner Haman. Hamin Eitz Azeh, from this tree, the Eitz Hadas. Have you eaten? And once you ate from that tree, now suddenly I'm walking around, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Adam and Chava weren't embarrassed before. Why wouldn't they, embarrass? what do they have to be embarrassed for? They're God's presence in the world. I have to be embarrassed with my pinky. Have to be embarrassed with my, your one-year-old girl runs around the house or your one-year-old boy runs around the house. You know how they run around the house. Nobody's embarrassed. Even if it's Friday night or it's the middle of a Sheva because there's 50 people in your room. They walk there and it's so cute. He's so adorable. Everybody's taking pictures. When your 14-year-old walks around that way, suddenly you're calling every psychiatrist in New York. What happened between one and fourteen? 14? The fourteen-year-old is not the same little cute kid. We don't look at them the same way anymore. Why? Self-consciousness. The one-year-old, there's no etzadas. <laughs> there's no. So, I'm. I'm embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. What do I look like? What I don't look like. The mental chatter is gone. The challenge is we don't remain one years old. We ate from the etzadas, so we have yada. I have to work through my das, but chaya finished but of the Purim gives a Jew the koyach, the opportunity, the gift, that my relationship with life, my relationship with myself, my relationship with the world, my relationship with my loved ones, with my spouse, with my children, with every person, and of course with Hashem, is one that goes much deeper than Eitz It goes to a place of Loyada, Beinarah Hamalabarach Mardachai. The one, the essence of the Jew becomes completely one. The Dveikus with the ain save that transcends any filter. Any limitation and the greatest limitation, the limitation that I impose on myself from my own das. Am I allowed to be happy? Am I not allowed, allowed to be happy? Am I supposed to be anxious? Am I not supposed to be anxious? How anxious, how not anxious? And I stay there, and the more I argue, the more anxious, the more anxious I become. Comes Rava and says, Purim is the gift of the Yada, the complete dvekus with the ain soif that is absolutely infinite, is manifested within the soul and the body, viscerally, of every single Jew. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And a lechem purim. Adelayada. To all of you, and to all of us, and to all of our people. Thank you very much. Please take a drink. I'll take a drink, yes. It's not wine, it's water, but it's fine. You could do it through water too sometimes. Sometimes it's better through water. Well, you, I hope you understood what the mitzvah is. I hope you understood now what the mitzvah is. If this is the mitzvah, then it's good for men and it's good for women also. <laughs> yes. So it doesn't. So when it says a person should drink, I'm put That's what it means. That sometimes wine helps a person go deeper into themselves, but it's not about getting drunk and smashed and then it does getting unstuck. And sometimes, for some people, wine will do the opposite. So that's the vart. It's not... But isn't there a madrash that Mordechai and Haman worked in the stables? Together? That's also true. He knew Mordechai. Yeah. That's the question. What does it mean? If he knew Mordechai already, what does it mean? He found out about the nation of Mordechai. What did he find out? What did he find out? That they were tzitzis. What did he find out? That they go to shul? He giddel lo Mordechai. He found out that every Jew is a little Mordechai. When we can do Adela Yoda inside, I think by osmosis it affects a lot of people around us. The Jewish people are like a body, one body. When you strengthen one part of the body, the whole body gets strengthened. And so maybe we're being asked to do this genius work. Internal transformation affects the whole world. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes